Well, good morning. If you would have, find your seats. So we'll, uh, we'll get started today. It's good to be here. Good to be anywhere, I guess. Um, all right, well, today, uh, we'll be preaching on, on, in our series on Psalms through the summer. We're going to be preaching today in Psalm 57. I was going to call this sermon Dave in a Cave, but I thought that was probably not appropriate. Um, but it seems as though King David spent a good portion of his 20s hiding in caves. Um, so, anyway, I'm sorry I get caught up. Um, we are probably familiar with uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. Um, if you're not, she was uh, uh, in Christendom, uh, a pretty famous individual because of the fact that her first husband, Jim Elliot, um, was martyred along with other, uh, four other men in the jungles of Ecuador in an attempt to bring the gospel to a uh, very hostile uh, tribe there, the uh, Aka tribe, um, in the jungles of Ecuador. And so she, but she also then lost her second husband, um, Addison, to cancer after only four years of marriage. Um, and in an address that she had given to uh, a conference, for the uh, Urban Missions Conference in 1976, she told a story of being in Wales and witnessing a shepherd and his dog, and she was with the shepherd's wife, apparently, but um, the, the shepherd and the dog herding the sheep, and the dog would herd the sheep up this ramp, and the sheep would get to the end of the ramp and just cascade into a giant vat or pool of antiseptic. And, of course, she, uh, sheep are not the greatest of swimmers, I, from what I understand. And so they'd flail around in this vat looking to try to get out. And the shepherd was standing at the one end of the vat. And as soon as they would swim towards him, he would reach in and push them back, up under, back into the water and, uh, or into that antiseptic. And, of course, this was to remove the parasites and that sort of thing off of the sheep. Um, and Elizabeth Elliot looked over to the wife of the shepherd and says, do you think these sheep have any idea what's happening to them to, right now? And, she, and the shepherd's wife said, they haven't a clue. And so she told the people of this conference that she could think of many times that she related with these sheep. She was swimming to the shepherd, the one that they trust, the one that she trusted, and for some reason it seemed as though she was being pushed away and pushed down back into a place where she felt as though she was drowning. And if you've been a Christian for very long, there's probably been times in your life when you felt the very same way, where just overwhelmed with what is happening in your life today. Mrs. Elliot told these people in this conference this and that she was extremely sympathetic to these poor rams because they couldn't figure out, as she couldn't figure out, the treatment that she was receiving from the shepherd that she trusted. 
David has had, had had the very same experience. And so when you have to think about this, get the, get the whole story here. David, as a teenager, he's anointed king by Samuel. Shortly after that, he uh, hears of this, this giant Philistine uh, speaking uh, about his God in such a way that he was so offended he felt compelled to stand before this giant with a stone and a sling. And he slew this giant, Goliath. From that, he was cast into national fame among his people, that he was the man who killed the giant Goliath, beheading him. And from that, King Saul developed a jealous rage towards David. And for most of his 20s, David spent his days running and hiding, living in caves, trying to keep away from this madman that was looking to kill him. So the title of the psalm in Psalm 57 tells us that he wrote this when he was running from Saul in the cave. And caves are interesting places. We have multiple caves in the area. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning David with his, his men hiding out in a cave from this madman outside, potentially, looking to kill him. And not only that, but this madman had an entire army that was at his beck and call. So it would be like you, me, hiding out in one of these caves, and the most powerful person in our country, whoever that might be, is after you and looking to see that you're, you die. What a place to be, right? So chances are he never even lit a torch in these caves. He's living in absolute darkness for the most part, I would guess. But even if it had lights, it's not a place I want to leave, live. So if I were holed up in a cave, hiding from a madman that had the amount of power that King Saul had in that day. And I, I knew that God had promised me something that I could not possibly even see coming close to being true at any point in the near future. I'm afraid I would have some questions in my mind. I'm afraid I would be struggling with what is it that God is doing here. I can tell you for certain, I most likely would not be writing songs to praise and exalt the Lord, as David is doing. But David, he's not writing the blues. He's writing songs to sing God's praises in the midst of this trial. David has something to teach us about how we might think and how we might act in times when we're holed up in a cave, when God's promises don't seem to be coming true in our life, David is, had to have been saying to himself, you've anointed me as king. I didn't even want the job. And you've made these promises to me. Why don't you just remove Saul and put me in place? And let's be done with it. 
right? But that's not what, what is happening here. In the midst of this trial, and as a result of this trial, David recognizes the truth. And the truth is that that question of why are you doing this to me is the wrong question. The question should be, what is it that you desire from me, Lord? What is it that I need to learn from this experience, God, that is going to enable me to serve you better? So if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 57. We're going to read the entire chapter, 11 verses, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 11. And God's word says this, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For you, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O God, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, David. And we know the stories of David. We know um, that there were many times when he fell short. Just like us, God, there are many times in which we fall short, but Father, his heart was such that you said he was a man after your own heart. Lord, that he, um, he has many things to teach us. Father, help us to see and understand the truth of what he is uh, proclaiming here, the truth about who you are, what it is that you are doing in our life in times of trial, in times of struggle. Father, that we might ask the right questions. Lord, be with us today. Be glorified in what we do and what we say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's glory should be our aim at all times, but especially in times of trial. So what does it mean to glorify God? In Hebrew... The word that is used here is kavod. It has with it the idea of weight and heaviness, worthiness, reputation, honor, 
and all those kinds of things. We might use this phrase um, in our language as, uh, this guy, he's a real heavyweight. Um, He's a real heavyweight in his field or something like that. He has substance. He's someone to be reckoned with. And when kavod is, was used in applying, uh, applied towards God, it referred to his intrinsic worth. It means that God is worthy of all honor because of who God is. A God who is perfect in all of his attributes and all of his ways, that is, to glorify God is to ascribe honor and praise to God for who he is and for what it is he's done. It means to show God or to show others God's excellencies and to exalt him. In what would be maybe more um, crude language or our language, if you will, to glorify God would be to make him look good as he really is through my life or through your life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, he writes, so, let's see, he writes, uh, so whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. He meant let the Promotion of God's glory or honor be our aim. Is, is that your aim? As you wake up each morning, get ready for work or whatever, get ready to take care of the, to round up the kids again, throw them in a vat of antiseptic. No, I'm kidding. Um, <coughs> is your desire to exalt and glorify God in all that you do? Do you strive in every way to act in such a way that others would praise God just based on encountering you? That should be what we strive to do. I know it's certainly not something that happens all the time, but it is something we should strive to emulate Christ in that way that everywhere he went things were different David shows us two ways that we might actually do that first we glorify God as we trust him in our trials in looking at verses 1 through 6 the word trust does not appear here at all but it is in fact the main idea. Unfortunately, often, this phrase that is used, trust in the Lord, um, has become somewhat cliche in Christian circles. Nothing quite like being in the midst of a struggle, whatever that is, and it varies for each and every one of us. Um, You might look at as someone that uh, that is just broken about what's going on in their life, and you look at it and you go, really? You know, I had a much worse problem last week. But we say tritely, trust in the Lord. 
that's not given the way in which it should be given. But you know what? Honestly, there is not any advice that one might give that is better advice than that. If given sincerely and received honestly, there's nothing greater than that. Trust in the Lord. Because in doing so, it changes everything. It changes our view of our circumstance. It takes the circumstance and makes us, like David, recognize that it's not, why is this happening to me, God? But what is it you're attempting to make me see, God? It changes everything. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, how can the Lord be unmerciful to a trustful soul? Our faith does not deserve mercy, but it always wins it from the sovereign grace of God when it's sincere. Secondly, or first, here in trusting in the Lord in the midst of our trials, trust involves relying upon God alone. That's hard to do. Um, we are task-oriented. Especially guys, we're the worst. I mean, I've tried to talk to my wife, and we have this problem, we're going to discuss it. She wants to talk about it. I want to kill it. That's the solution. Kill it. Problem solved, let's move on. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Um, over the years, I've, I've learned that. That's not necessarily the way to approach a conversation with my wife. Um, but verse 1, David describes his trust as taking refuge in God. He uses this picture of baby chicks um, gathering under their mother's wing for refuge. A threat of a predator approaches and they run. They run to their mother. She puts her wings out. They gather under her wing. This is the, this is the picture that David is painting for us with regard to how God, we should run to God. So the moment the, the trial happens, the more, moment that struggle takes place, what is the first thing that we do? Do we run to the Lord? I have to admit that's not the case in me, my case most of the time. I'm coming up with all the solutions. How am I going to kill it? That's, what I, that's my thought. I've got to attack this thing and make it go away. Another quote from Spurgeon love that guy, says, even as a parent bird completely shields her brood from evil and meanwhile cherishes them with the warmth of her own heart by covering them with her wings, so do thou with me, my most condescending God. For I am thine offspring, and thou hast a parent's love in perfection." So first of all, we don't rely upon human merit. David says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious, gracious to me. In, in some translations, what we read was be merciful. But God's grace and his mercy refers to, his, to undeserved favor. In Charles Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon's first quote, it says that, that although we don't 
necessarily deserve it, God, the sovereign God, gives his grace to us. And I find that many who profess Christ today have a, have a poor understanding of grace. I know that um, I have a poor understanding of grace and or have struggled with this idea of grace. I came from a background that was very much works-based. Um, and it's because I'm flesh, again, I, I try to, I, I want to, my desire of my heart is I want to earn my place. I want to be the one that acquires the credit. I'm the one that wants the glory. And so it's a much easier thing for me to do this and do that, follow this rule and then that rule, and from that I receive this. That's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Hard, to con- hard concept to, to get, wrap your head around. But, I mean, I don't know about you. Have you ever said to yourself, why is this happening to me? And then you can go even further and say, but I've been extra good lately. Um, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been going to church. I've even been tithing. And yet this is happening to me as if God owes us something. That's not trusting in God alone. Secondly, we should not rely upon human means. David is in a cave, but his trust is not in the fact that he's hiding out in the cave. His trust is in the Lord. The point is that Dave hid in the cave, but he didn't trust that that cave would save him. He knew the Lord would. American Christians were very big on methods. Uh, There isn't a week that goes by that I don't receive some kind of an email from a Christian institution seeking to explain to me how I can increase the size of my church, which I find pretty funny because I don't really have a church. I'm a member of a church, but I guess Google has figured out or thinks they figured out the fact that because I'm of the searches I've done, Therefore, I must have a church, and so they're going to send all these ads my way. Um, And again, not that these methods necessarily are a bad thing. You know, if if you do this and you do that and and you have this particular music and or those particular lights at this particular time, suddenly your church is going to grow into something vast and enormous. And often um, that seems to be the goal. Uh, But... That's not the case, and it's certainly not the case here. Um, the, the Lord grows his church. It's his church. Um, so don't get me wrong. Like I said, methods, methods are often needed. Um, they're used to create. They're used to be efficient in many good and productive ways. Um, there also needs to be times when methods should not be used at all. On one occasion, when David was being pursued by Saul in another cave, um, uh, Saul enters the cave uh, that David and his men are hiding in. 
Saul enters the cave to relieve himself. And Dave's men whisper to him that, that God is delivering Saul to your hand. Go slay him. And I don't know how this was done. This is pretty amazing to me, pretty stealthful of this guy, David, that he sneaks up and is able to cut a piece of Saul's robe while Saul is relieving himself. This is a picture I would love to have seen. But um, that's just me, sorry. Um, he later then shows Saul the piece of this robe to just heap onto Saul the fact that David could have cut his throat, and yet he denied doing it. Now, again, I'm thinking of myself in that position. Here's this man that's hunting me, and I've been running from him for years. There's the opportunity I would have listened to, probably listened to the men whispering in my ear, God's handing him to you. God needs your help. Why don't you go take care of this guy? But that's not what David does. David then tells his men that he would not strike down Saul, that Saul was the Lord's anointed king. That, in my mind, takes great character. So when you consider, what is it that instead of asking the question of why am I stuck in this cave hiding, and you start asking the question of what is it that God is teaching me, what do we learn from David in that scenario? We learn that David is learning his rightful place before the Lord. The Lord said that David would be king. The Lord currently has another king in place. And David waits patiently, waits on the Lord, even in the circumstances that he finds himself in, knowing, trusting in the Lord that he can rely on God's promises. And we find that in 1 Samuel 24, if you want to read the story. But it's pretty amazing considering his situation. It's always wrong to rely upon human means. Perhaps the real issue from that is, if we don't, if David took that opportunity and he cut that man's throat, drug him out of the cave and displayed his head to Israel, who receives the glory in that? I think that's the issue. Trust involves going to God in prayer. Prayer is language of trust. This psalm is primarily a prayer. Prayer is an acknowledgement that our need is not partial, but total. How many of you enjoy the idea of admitting that? Yeah, the, the, the prayer that we pray to God says to God, I'm dependent upon you. I'm not self-sufficient. I can't handle this situation on my own, in my own strength. 
that prayer to God tells God and tells me that I need his help. Why do we have such difficulty in prayer? I mean, I don't know about you. I lead a prayer ministry here. Prayer is difficult. I, I, I constantly get angry with myself again because I tend to want to check the boxes and earn my place before the Lord. <laughs> constantly beating myself up because ah, I, I, didn't, I didn't pray this morning. I was going to get up and pray and I didn't do it. I, as if as if God's keeping score. He already knows my heart, right? I think that the reason why prayer is often so difficult, such a struggle, is because it has everything to do with trust. Again, it's about me, not about the Lord. Constant struggle, constant fight. But it's an awareness that I have today that at one time I never had. See, our pride, is often, it often prevents us from admitting the truth, and that is, the truth is, we're powerless. We've got no power. We can attempt to do these things. We get up and we do the stuff we normally do, and yeah, things get done, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to do that again tomorrow. None. So we truly are powerless, and we rely and should rely upon the Lord. Trust involves seeing God as greater than my problems. Here David uses poetic language as though in verses 4 and 6, through 6, it is as though he's surrounded by lions or fire-breathing dragons, for that matter, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords about to get him. He's outnumbered. And it, it just seems as though it's a matter of time before it's all over. What if God's promises aren't true? What if Saul succeeds in seeing the, me done away with? Then suddenly in verse 5, right in the middle of that, it seems odd, and David likes to do this in his in, his, in the Psalms, is he throws verse 5 out there, and it seems out of place. It seems as though that should be after verse 6, kind of finishing up that stanza. But in the midst of him talking about the fire-breathing dragons or the, all the swords and all the people after him and, and the pit that's being dug and all these things, in the midst of that, suddenly he just exalts the Lord. Bang. Out of, you know, I praise you, God. He's just, Weird, but I've been there where I've gone through this idea in my head where if I just do this, if I can make that happen, if I can just make this, if I can do this, if I, oh God, Lord, I, I give it to you. I'm, what am I thinking? Been there. Yeah. So, There isn't a problem that's too big for God. Not one. David suddenly realizes that God is bigger than his problems. I think that's what's happening at that moment. Trust is only as good as the object that's being trusted. One of the things that uh, I've heard uh, Pastor Seth say in, Af in Africa over and over and over again 
The people of Islam, um, this is a, a religion of works. Five times a day you pray, you do these things, you count the beads, you say the prayer repeatedly, you do this list of things, and then possibly you may be adequate before the Lord that you could go to, or before Allah, that you could go to paradise. There's no certainty of that. You've got to make sure you've done all these things. So they're very, very entrenched with this idea of performing these tasks that are going to get them where they want to be. And one of the things that, that Seth loves to, to do with the new believer that comes forward and they say, well, what do I got to do? I mean, that's the first thing out of their mouth. I want to trust Jesus. What do I got to do? Believe. And they look at you like you got an arm growing out of your forehead. They're like, huh? You believe. And they don't, it's like they don't even understand the concept. And so they got these rickety plastic chairs that have been in 100 degree heat forever outside and these plastic chairs that they stack up and so this is what they sit in in the compounds and you got to be careful which chair you sit in because some of them not so good right <coughs> so they got one that's got a crack in the in the seat and Dabo our interpreter he's funny because he's the biggest African man I've ever met um, but he he's like looking at the chairs oh no 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 oh no you know okay he'll sit in this one right and then we they, Seth will ask um, why don't you sit in this chair? Because it's broken. It's not going to hold you. You can't trust it. But when you find a chair that you can trust, that's the one you're going to run to as soon as you get in the compound. So you've got a chair that's safe and you're not going to end up on the ground. That's the idea. So <clears throat> we can go into story after story when we talk in, in the Old Testament with Israel, thinking that their problem is bigger than God's, or than God. We can see the events at the Red Sea. They're standing at the Red Sea. They got the Egyptian army back there, and they're going, uh, what are we going to do? And what, of course, happens is God does the miraculous, and they go on safe uh, to the other side. The Egyptian army is crushed. They witness this event, and then within weeks, they're saying, we got no water. We're hungry. What's going on? Is God going to do something about this? I mean, what are we going to do? God feeds them. He waters, gives them water. And then we come to the place where they're going to go into the promised land. There's Cana. They're going to go across the river. And, and, and uh, Moses sends in the spies to go spy out the land the vast majority come back and they say, man, that land is awesome, but these people, they're too big. There's not a thing we're going to be able to do. They, they are too big. We're, we, it, it's suicide. That's crazy. We can't go in there and do that. And, of course, Joshua and Caleb, they saw their God as bigger than the problem. They said, yep, they're big, but God has promised, and we need to get up and we need to go. Over and over, We've seen that God is bigger than the problem. The Israelites are not alone in this. You have seen that God is bigger than your problem. So you can think of adding, uh, I mean, well, you can think of adding anything to that list, whatever your situations have been. But is there anything that is too difficult for God? Anybody want to raise their hand and give anything that's too difficult? 
That's a silly question, is it not? Trust involves relying on God alone, going Him to in prayer and seeing Him as bigger than the problems that we have or any problem for that matter. But David shows us a second way God can be glorified in our trials. God is glorified as we praise him in those trials, in our trials. In verses 7 through 11, so far as we can tell, David is still in the cave. Saul is still king, chasing him, hunting him down. David's circumstances haven't changed at all. And instead of self-pity and complaining, David breaks out into praise. He teaches us two things about praise. One, praise is a matter of deliberate focus. In verses 7 through 9, praise is not our natural response in a time of trial. It's not the first thing I think of when something bad happens. I've walked up to a car, but this is back when I drove some really bad cars, really bad cars, Walk up to a car and there's a puddle of water. You see antifreeze underneath the car. The first thing I think, up, crack block, the whole engine's toast, right? Until I lift the hood and it's just a radiator hose. I mean, you know, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. The worst possible scenario was the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, so it's deliberate focus. It's not our natural state to be encountered by a problem and... Just naturally trust in the Lord. I think it's something that's learned, can be learned, but unfortunately it's not my first (laughs) go-to. They said that they fixed a net for him in verse 6, but David fixed his heart. That's deliberate. He fixed his heart to praise God. He repeated, repeats this affirmation to show that it's a matter of deliberate choice. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Sometimes you need to praise God even when you don't feel like it. I mean, you may think, well, isn't that kind of hypocrisy? And the answer is no, that's obedience. Hypocrisy doesn't mean that you do things you don't feel like doing. If that were the case, I'd been a hypocrite this morning just getting out of bed. I, I, I didn't really want to do that, but I did it anyway. Um, being a hypocrite, um, would be, hypocrisy is trying to present a false impression to others uh, so that you look better than you really are. But praising God is a matter of obedience, and the test of obedience isn't when you feel like it, When you feel like obeying, that's not really a test at all. Praising God when you don't feel like it is a test. The next time that you're going through a difficult trial and you're depressed or overwhelmed, follow David's lead and set your heart to praise God. Break out a hymn book and start singing his praises. Turn on some praise music and focus on the Lord by singing to him. David's singing in the cave, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but Saul's right outside, maybe. I don't know if I'd be singing, but he's waking the dawn. I mean, he's singing, right? Praise is a matter of testifying to others of God's goodness. David wants the nations 
those that don't know God, to hear his praise, even though he's going through extreme difficulty. He wants to sing about how good God is so that others will hear and glorify God. David specifies two aspects of God's goodness, which are often uh, occur together in Psalms, and that is his loving kindness and his truth, or his faithfulness. Loving kindness comes from the Hebrew word that is related to the stork. The stork apparently is an extremely motherly bird. Um, and so therefore we get the cartoons of the stork delivering babies, right? Um, <coughs> so, but the Hebrew saw that this loving, loyal bird took care of his young in such a way they saw that God loves like that only greater. And he cares for and nurtures us with never-ending love. Truth points to God's faithfulness, his consistent and trustworthy. He never fails his children. He never gets it wrong. He doesn't have a plan B. He may bring us to a severe situation and sometimes even to a premature death. But there is not a person in history who has trusted in the living God and been disappointed. Even those that have suffered greatly have testified to God's abundant love and faithfulness which has sustained them. Paul's desire is, uh, as he was in prison and facing possible execution, should be ours. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, It says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's important that you focus your praise on God's loyal love and his faithfulness in a time of trial, because it is precisely that and those qualities which Satan tempts us to not believe. You'll be tempted to think, if God really loves me, then, then why is all this happening to me? But David's voice should come singing from the cave. God, your loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, so God, let your glory be above all the earth. We can take encouragement from David living in hiding, in a cave, uncertain of his next breath, and praising God. God's glory should be our aim at all times, but especially in times of trial. As a believer, what would it be like if the next time, or even now, when you found yourself in a cave, you followed David's example, You trusted in God alone. You went to him in prayer. And you recognized he is much, much bigger than any of our problems. What would it be like? Through Jesus and the gospel, we have one who has overcome, who understands our problems. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I think that the simple answer is in the time of suffering when we want to know why, what I need to know is a deeper understanding of what God has done in Christ for me. My suffering or cave is not about me. It's about knowing my Lord. Knowing him more so I can sing his praises. See, as a believer, we know how this ends. What is your problem compared to eternity? We have one who has overcome all of our trials, including death. Like David, we can be confident, even in the cave, that the Lord is steadfast in his love and he's faithful. Glory be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.